Section 12 of Moonface and Other Stories by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Planchette, Part 5. Chris lay on his back, his head propped by the bare, jutting wall of stone, his gaze attentively directed across the canyon to the opposing tree-covered slope. There was a sound of crashing through underbrush, the ringing of steel-shod hoofs on stone, and an occasional and mossy descent of a dislodged boulder that bounded from the hill and fetched up with a final splash in the torrent that rushed over a wild chaos of rocks beneath him. Now and again he caught glimpses, framed in green foliage, of the golden brown of Lute's corduroy riding habit and of the bay horse that moved beneath her. She rode out into an open space where a loose earth slide denied lodgment to trees and grass. She halted the horse at the brink of the slide and glanced down it with a measuring eye. Forty feet beneath, the slide terminated in a small, firm-surfaced terrace, the banked accumulation of fallen earth and gravel. "'It is a good test,' she called across the canyon. "'I'm going to put him down it.' The animal gingerly launched himself on the treacherous footing, irregularly losing and gaining his hind feet, keeping his forelegs stiff and steadily and calmly without panic or nervousness, extricating the four feet as fast as they sank too deep into the sliding earth that surged along in a wave before him. When the firm footing at the bottom was reached, he strode out on the little terrace with a quickness and springiness of gait, and with glintings of muscular fires that gave the lie to the calm deliberation of his movements on the slide. "'Bravo!' Chris shouted across the canyon, clapping his hands. The wisest-footed, clearest-headed horse I ever saw, Lute called back as she turned the animal to the side and dropped down a broken slope of rubble and into the trees again. Chris followed her by the sound of her progress, and by occasional glimpses where the foliage was more open, as she zigzagged down the steep and trailless descent. She emerged below him at the rugged rim of the torrent, dropped the horse down a three-foot wall, and halted to study the crossing. Four feet out in the stream, a narrow ledge thrust above the surface of the water. Beyond the ledge boiled an angry pool, but to the left from the ledge and several feet lower was a tiny bed of gravel. A giant boulder prevented direct access to the gravel bed. The only way to gain it was by first leaping to the ledge of rock. She studied it carefully and the tightening of her bridal arm advertised that she had made up her mind. Chris and his anxiety had sat up to observe more closely what she meditated. Don't tackle it, he called. I have faith in Comanche, she called in return. He can't make that side jump to the gravel, Chris warned. He'll never keep his legs. He'll topple over into the pool. Not one horse in a thousand could do that stunt. And Comanche is that very horse, she answered. Watch him. She gave the animal his head, and he leapt cleanly and accurately to the ledge, striking with feet close together on the narrow space. On the instant he struck... Lute lightly touched his neck with the rein, impelling him to the left, and in that instant, tottering on the insecure footing, with front feet slipping over into the pool beyond, he lifted on his hind legs with a half-turn, sprang to the left, and dropped squarely down to the tiny gravel bed. An easy jump brought him across the stream, and Lute angled him up to the bank and halted before her lover. "'Well?' she asked. "'I am all tense,' Chris answered. "'I was holding my breath.' "'By him, by all means,' Lute said, dismounting. "'He is a bargain. 
I could dare anything on him. I never in my life had such confidence in a horse's feet. His owner says that he has never been known to lose his feet, that it is impossible to get him down. Buy him, buy him at once, she counseled. Before the man changes his mind, if you don't, I shall. Oh, such feet. I feel such confidence in them that when I am on him, I don't consider he has feet at all. And he's quick as a cat, instantly obedient. Bridlewise is no name for it. You could guide him with silken threads. Oh, I know I'm enthusiastic, but if you don't buy him, Chris, I shall. Remember, I have second refusal. Chris smiled agreement as he changed the saddles. Meanwhile, she compared the two horses. Of course, he doesn't match Dolly the way Ban did, she concluded regretfully. But his coat is splendid just the same. And think of the horse that is under the coat. Chris gave her a hand into the saddle and followed her up the slope to the country road. She reined in suddenly, saying, We won't go straight back to the camp. You forget dinner, he warned. But I remember Comanche, she retorted. We'll ride directly over to the ranch and buy him. Dinner will keep. But the cook won't, Chris laughed. She already threatened to leave, what of our late comings. Even so, was the answer. Aunt Mildred may have to get another cook, but at any rate we shall have got Comanche. They turned the horses in the other direction and took the climb of the Nun Canyon Road that led over the divide and down into the Napa Valley. But the climb was hard, the going was slow. Sometimes they topped the bed of the torrent by hundreds of feet, and again they dipped down and crossed and recrossed it twenty times and twice as many rods. They rode through the deep shade of clean-trunked maples and towering redwoods to emerge on open stretches of mountain shoulder, where the earth lay dry and cracked under the sun. On one such shoulder they emerged, where the road stretched level before them, for a quarter of a mile. On one side rose the huge bulk of the mountain. On the other side the steep wall of the canyon fell away in impossible slopes and sheer drops to the torrent at the bottom. It was an abyss of green beauty and shady depths, pierced by vagrant shafts of the sun and mottled here and there by the sun's broader blazes. The sound of rushing water ascended on the windless air, and there was a hum of mountain bees. The horses broke into an easy lope. Chris rode on the outside, looking down into the great depths and pleasuring with his eyes in what he saw. Dissociating itself from the murmur of the bees, a murmur arose of falling water. It grew louder with every stride of the horses. "'Look!' he cried. Lute leaned well out from her horse to see. Beneath them the water slid foaming down a smooth-faced rock to the lip, whence it leaped clear a pulsating ribbon of white, a breath with movement, ever falling and ever remaining, changing its substance but never its form, an aerial waterway as immaterial as gauze and as permanent as the hills, that spanned space and the free air from the lip of the rock to the tops of the trees far below, into whose green screen it disappeared to fall into a secret pool. They had flashed past, the descending water became a distant murmur that merged again into the murmur of the bees and ceased. Swayed by a common impulse, they looked at each other. Oh, Chris, it is good to be alive and to have you here by my side. He answered her by the warm light in his eyes. All things tended to key them to an exquisite pitch, the movement of their bodies at one with the moving bodies of the animals beneath them the gently stimulated blood caressing the flesh through and through with the soft vigors of health, the warm air fanning their faces, flowing over the skin with balmy and tonic touch, permeating them and bathing them, subtly, with faint, 
sensuous delight. In the beauty of the world, more subtly still, flowing upon them and bathing them in the delight that is of the spirit and is personal and holy, that is inexpressible yet communicable by the flash of an eye and the dissolving of the veils of the soul. So looked they at each other, the horses bounding beneath them, the spring of the world, and the spring of their youth astir in their blood, the secret of being trembling in their eyes to the brink of disclosure, as if about to dispel with one magic word all the irks and riddles of existence. The road curved before them so that the upper reaches of the canyon could be seen, the distant bed of it towering high above their heads. They were rounding the curve, leaning toward the inside, gazing before them at the swift-growing picture. There was no sound of warning. She heard nothing. But even before the horse went down, she experienced the feeling that the unison of the two leaping animals was broken. She turned her head, and so quickly, that she saw Comanche fall. It was not a stumble, nor a trip. He fell as though abruptly in mid-leap. He had died or been struck by a stunning blow. And in that moment she remembered Planchette. It seared her brain as a lightning flash of all-embracing memory. Her horse was back on its haunches, the weight of her body on the reins, but her head was turned and her eyes were on the falling Comanche. He struck the roadbed squarely with his legs loose and lifeless beneath him. It all occurred in one of those age-long seconds that embrace an eternity of happening. There was a slight but perceptible rebound from the impact of Comanche's body with the earth. The violence with which he struck forced the air from his great lungs in an audible groan. His momentum swept him onward and over the edge. The weight of the rider on his neck turned him over headfirst as he pitched to the fall. She was off her horse, she knew not how, and to the edge. Her lover was out of the saddle and clear of Comanche, though he held to the animal by his right foot, which was caught in the stirrup. The slope was too steep for them to come to a stop. Earth and small stones dislodged by their struggles were rolling down with them and before them in a miniature avalanche. She stood very quietly, holding one hand against her heart and gazing down. But while she saw the real happening, in her eyes was also the vision of her father dealing the spectral blow that had smashed Comanche down in mid-leap and sent horse and rider hurtling over the edge. Beneath horse and man the steep terminated in an up-and-down wall from the base of which, in turn, a second slope ran down to a second wall. A third slope terminated in a final wall that based itself on the canyon bed four hundred feet beneath the point where the girl stood and watched. She could see Chris vainly kicking his leg to free the foot from the trap of the stirrup. Comanche fetched up hard against an out-jutting point of rock. For a fraction of a second his fall stopped and in the slight interval the man managed to grip hold of a young shoot of manzanita. Lute saw him complete the grip with his other hand. Then Comanche's fall began again. She saw the stirrup strap draw taut, then her lover's body and arms. The manzanita shoot yielded its roots, and horse and man plunged over the edge and out of sight. They came into view on the next slope together, and rolling over and over with sometimes the man under and sometimes the horse, Chris no longer struggled, and together they dashed over to the third slope, Near the edge of the final wall, Comanche lodged on a hummock of stone. He lay quietly, and near him, still attached to him by the stirrup, face downward, lay his rider. "'If only he will lie quietly,' Lute breathed aloud, her mind at work on the means of rescue. But she saw Comanche begin to struggle again. 
and clear on her vision, it seemed, was the spectral arm of her father clutching the reins and dragging the animal over. Comanche floundered across the hummock, the inert body following, and together, horse and man, they plunged from sight. They did not appear again. They had fetched bottom. Luke looked about her. She stood alone on the world. Her lover was gone. There was not to show of his existence save the marks of Comanche's hoofs on the road and of his body where it had slid over the brink. Chris! She called once and twice, but she called hopelessly. Out of the depths, on the windless air, arose only the murmur of bees and of running water. Chris! She called yet a third time and sank slowly down in the dust of the road. She felt the touch of Dolly's muzzle on her arm, and she leaned her head against the mare's neck and waited. She knew not why she waited, nor for what. Only there seemed nothing else but waiting left for her to do. End of section 12 End of Moonface and Other Stories by Jack London